Welcome to the Two-Year Bible, custom design two-year Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And we are um, continuing into uh, the book of First Samuel, or really the, the book of Samuel. Uh, our, right. our English translation made it two books, but because uh, it was written it was on two one. different scrolls, right? Yeah, yeah. There was there was a, an economy of of, of paper that uh, had to be uh, thought of, or how thick that roll started getting. And so, yeah, uh, at some point, I think uh, the Greeks came along and separated it out. But hey, it, it helps us get a pretty clean division somewhere in the middle of the story. And so uh, we pick up with the Lord calling Samuel to his task as sort of this priest. And as we'll continue to see a prophet and and a judge as well. But uh, yeah, so I think that this may be the climax of the whole book. And I know not, not everyone may think that, but the word of the Lord returns to Israel. We'd seen so much time where God, while he was at work, seemed absent. And of course, we saw glimpses of him in the book of Ruth. uh, But in Judges, it just seemed this spiral of becoming farther and farther and farther from God. And no one was even seeking God or wanting to obey God. And then the Lord initiates and calls Samuel and speaks to Samuel. And then we'll see the role that Samuel plays. So I just, I think it's a it's an exciting piece because it's just a, a reminder of God's faithfulness. He's a covenantal God and he's promised to remain faithful to Israel. And so he's showing up again. And, and there's so much good symbolism. It's like, while it was still dark, God spoke or even Hannah, Hannah's barrenness. And then uh, yeah. was like a symbol of Israel itself. And eventually the, the, the pregnancy is sort of like the hope. And, and I think we're getting these moments of hope of where the future is going uh, only to have that dashed in the very next story. But um, these, these moments of hope of, of how things are going and, and we get important statements like the Lord was with him. Like mm-hmm. that's such a vital piece of information about a, a, a leader uh, for Israel. That yeah. The Lord is with him. And everybody knows who he is. The prophet is known from all over Israel, um, which makes it a little peculiar. That's all doesn't quite know where he is in a little bit. But uh, everybody seems to know that Samuel is who God has appointed as a prophet for Israel. And then yeah. we get uh, a bit of a departure from the life of uh, Samuel and Eli and that crowd uh, to hear about uh, the Philistines. And the Philistines were a coastal crowd. Uh, the, the Israel always kind of has to deal with the Philistines and the Phoenicians, the, the kind of coastal groups that um, really always seem to have a stronghold in like uh, everywhere along the coast. And um, Israel will constantly have to deal with them uh, from from here through uh, some of the time of David. And uh, and, and so they asked the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Which is a great question. Mm-hmm. And, and their answer is just terrible. <laughs> At some point it's like, oh, because we've sinned and idolatry and we need to repent and, and come to the Lord. But they don't, they don't say that. <laughs> they don't say because of our sin. They think, well, maybe it's because we forgot the magic box that yeah. will somehow magically cause us to win our victories. Just like Jericho. We brought it around, marched around with it. Like, let's do that again and see what happens. But no, it's Yahweh to fight your battles, not the, not the ark itself. Right. They're like kind of trying to use it as a charm or some sort of superstitious incantation to get them what they want. Right. And it makes me think of, you know, like, oh, we may not do it literally like they did, but how often um, do we claim we're seeking God in something, but not actually seek him about it? And is that like a quick prayer over a test you didn't study for or thanking God for giving you a stimulus check, but not praying about how to use it? Like when do we kind of use God as, as more of a superstitious behavior rather than, than Yahweh? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even like incantation prayer of like, 
I said this one phrase, therefore God's going to do We pray this, this. in your yeah, name, yeah. Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I think yeah. I think there's a little bit of that of like, no, this isn't a magic spell or a magic box or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like y- Yahweh is either fighting your battles or he's not uh, because you are, and as we will see, you are repentant and moving forward by faith, which is what we'll see out of Israel in a moment. But um, right now we don't get that. And, and, and the ark ends up getting taken, which is, mm-hmm. in some ways, like, this, this is the bottoming out, I think, of Israel. Like, we're getting these moments of hope in this book, but, like, not only have they had terrible judges, not only is Eli and his sons jacked up and, and die in this process, uh, but um, we lost the ark. We lost the very picture and presence. Like, the thing that we spent chapters upon chapters upon chapters describing uh, right. the building of and the building of the tabernacle and all that, and now it's gone. Which is, I think it's, you know, interesting thinking about how God is a covenantal God and he has promised faithfulness and steadfast love to Israel. And so we just read how God is fulfilling his covenant to Israel through speaking to Samuel. And then we see this representation of God leaving Israel. Now we know he doesn't because of his covenant, but it, it looks like he is. Yeah. And so the Philistines put the ark next to one of their gods, which does not turn out well for their god, Dagon, um, who is actually the father of Baal. And, and there's all sorts of things he represents, but he gets knocked down. They put him back up and then they find out he's decapitated and he has his hands cut off uh, when they go back in to, to see where the ark and Dagon are, which is a total picture of like, that's how kings are defeated in military battles. So like... Yahweh's just defeated Dagon in mm-hmm. the temple is sim- symbolically. And, and so even without Israel fighting, God, Yahweh fights his own battles just fine. And, and he is stronger than the gods of the Philistines. And not only that, but he sends a plague amongst the Philistines. They don't know what to do with it. They keep trying to move the ark around thinking they'll solve the problem. Nobody wants the ark. And, and they eventually sort of decide to return the ark to Israel and send with them these gold tumors, which is, totally weird and gross, but sent these gold tumors (laughs) and these gold mice. Uh, So maybe this was a mice carrying type plague of some sort. Um, And, and send that ark back to Israel. Yahweh takes care of his own business without Israel's intervention here. And so they decide to return this ark, but they almost put like one final test and they hitched the wagon to these cows that recently would have had calves as if, um, the cows would have naturally gone back to the field where their calves were. So it's sort of like, Hey, we'll even see if God could control and and make these animals work against their very nature. And and he does like the, the animals return the ark to the people. And, um, but immediately they screw up again. Some people open up the ark and they're like, Hey, let's, let's kind of look inside of it. Um, which you're not supposed to do anything. The the ark should be hidden and the priest should be hiding it. But, uh, in, in the Holy of Holies, but, um, they're, they're struggling still for reverence of who God, is and and there's really not been a repentance at least yet we're about to get there though yeah and and i think we have to come back again to where we landed early on in our old testament reading and that god is holy he's not to be trifled with and he will judge anyone who does not treat or honor him as holy and that's going to be the philistines or the israelites they didn't get to claim this like i'm god's favorite kid and can do no wrong sort of attitude there is um as much as like we want Jesus to be our homeboy, and as much as we want God to be relational, which he is, he's also set apart and holy and needs to be revered for that. 
Yeah. And there's some mention in Jeremiah 7 about the destruction of Shiloh. So it's possible that the tabernacle was sort of uh, ransacked in somewhat of the process. Maybe not everything destroyed, but um, there seems to be a move from Shiloh at this point where um, Eli and his family are dead. Shiloh's sort of destroyed. And they're sort of like, okay, where do we put this? Where do we put the ark? And they end up say, staying basically with this farmer uh, until uh, they basically get a new tabernacle, I think, ready for it. And so uh, Samuel judges over Israel and he speaks out against their adoption or, or um, use of the Canaanite gods of, of Baal and Ashereth and, and, and the worship of, of their gods. And so this is sort of like this giant public ceremony of national repentance. Like this is what we've been wanting to see out of Israel, out of everything we've just watched them do. Like this is, um, this is what we need. This is a good turning point for them. And they acknowledge and confess their guilt. And guess what happens? They win. They win against the Philistines mm-hmm. in the process. No more magic box, but God is fighting for his people. It says, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusions and they defeated him. And so you get repentance, you get confession, you get them led by a leader who has been raised and appointed yeah. by God. And we get God fighting for them in their victory. Like this is the way they should be operating uh, in this process. This is what happens when they seek after Yahweh. Right. Um, yeah. And when they have a solid leader with them, we've seen how often Israel's trajectory has been determined by their leader that they're following. Yeah, absolutely. And that will only continue as we continue into Kings and Chronicles and yeah. all that. And so, um, but Israel's demanding a king and, and we've get a, we've gotten a little bit of a foretelling of that. We've, we've seen in, in the end of Genesis that they would eventually have a king. We've seen in Deuteronomy 17 that even the statement, when you come into the land and possess it and dwell in it, you will say, I will set a king over me. Uh, you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And you will indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And so um, I, Israel's fine to have a king. I don't think having a king is wrong. And, and eventually they'll have David and certainly have Jesus. But there seems to be problems with the way they're asking for a king. and The, the, the phrasing of like all the other nations around us. And eventually they'll say that, that we'll go and fight our battles for us. It's like, hold on. Like, not only did you just learn that it's God who fights the battles for you, not a box and not a king, um, right. but like you don't want to be like all the other nations around us. Like that is not that's not your goal. That's not your job. Like your job is to be a holy set apart nation, like a, a nation that marches around cities with priesthoods and boxes, and uh, who take in foreign slaves, who uh, make make. Um, who, who accept those who repent, even if they're foreign and, and not even of your faith group and, right. and come to faith or provide for the poor in their fields and are gracious towards anyone. Like that is, you are a set apart nation. So the, to use the phrase to be like the other nations around us, like that's the exact opposite of what God wants you to do. God wants you to bless the nations, not be like the nations. And so, um, yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's their hearts that have rejected in some ways God, which God will call them out for yeah. uh, to Samuel. Yeah, and where God says to Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. It just like it's it just makes me really sad and I immediately stopped and just prayed that that we as the church as Christians now would not reject God's rule over us as king. Yeah. And Samuel gives some practical warnings too. It's like, hey, kings aren't always great. You have to pay taxes. They're going to use some of your animals. They're going to go to war. They're yeah. going to do all this kind of stuff. They're going to build like a little empire here. Are you sure you really want that? And so, um, yeah, it just ends so well. The Lord grants. Yeah, like how often do we 
do we say like, God, I want this one thing. And God's like, this thing that you want isn't actually at all what you want. Right. Um, and again, it leaves me like praying like, Lord, give me the heart of my desires. Like give me what I truly want and what you know is best for me, not what I think I want in the moment. Yeah. And, and there's times where God rightfully says no, but there's also times where God's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the thing you want, but you're not going to, like you're going to learn yeah. your lesson from this. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. Or we hope they learn. <laughs> we, yeah, well, I guess we do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, th- yeah, they, they will eventually when God chooses David and says Saul, but we'll get there. Yeah. Um, I do think it's interesting. Like, you know, God says they're rejecting me as king over them, but he did give a provision for it in Deuteronomy. And I think a big piece of this, like you mentioned, Chris, is to point us to the fact that we will have a king mm-hmm. through Jesus Christ. And so he is paving the way for us to see Christ as the fulfillment of this perfect king of Israel. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see Saul be not a great king. He'll start okay at moments, and then we're gonna see David start as a pretty good king, and eventually kind of tail off. And Solomon has his struggles, and then everything fall apart after that. But um, it, we we need a king better than the kings of this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need a king not from this world, and and we're that's that's the hope coming out of the story of the kings is we we need a king that's different. <laughs> than all the other kings in this world. And we get that in the King of Kings and Jesus. Yeah. So, all right. So the new Testament, uh, we've got a load of stuff to talk through today. Uh, and, and so we get the introduction of the, the Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath kind of story. Um, and it's important to remember like, the, the law had made statements of like, look, don't work on the Sabbath. And we get a few other specifics like, hey, don't light fires on the Sabbath or don't collect sticks on the Sabbath because of the one guy who got annihilated for it. And um, so, but there's not a lot of specifics of like, okay, what does it really mean to work on the Sabbath? And so part of what became uh, additions to the law, um, not looked at as the same way as scripture, but interpretations is like all these rules that, that were created to say, okay, what is work and, and what is allowable? So like, it, sure, you shouldn't harvest on the Sabbath, but can you still pick grain? Is that allowable? And so um, there were endless debates around that that the rabbis would enter into, and they all had their different ways to frame it and ways to, to think about it. So like um, when, when Jesus would say things like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, like all of them agreed on that. But then the next phrase was usually like, like even the two major camps. One was obey the Sabbath. That was the second most important law. And the other one was love, the, love your neighbor. And, and so those, those competing ideas. And so this whole debate about the Sabbath was very contemporary for Jesus. And, and so it became sometimes, uh, okay, like as we deal with and wrestle through interpreting law and even thinking through like what law to obey the most, like, what do we do with that? So when the midwives are lying to Pharaoh about these newborn babies, like the preservation of life, does that trump a, a, an idea about lying or um, the example that's given here in the story of like David coming um, to this priest who um, David's men are starving and uh, the priest has showbread, which is like this consecrated bread that's within the temple. And the priest has to decide, okay, like is the consecration of the bread, the most important command that I'm to follow right at this moment, or is the provision for David and the soldiers who are uh, famished? Is that the most important command to follow right now? And, and sort of what framework do you make that decision? And that priest had to make a, a decision in, in the story. And we'll get there when we, we continue through David's story, but uh, to provide for David and his soldiers with this consecrated bread and, and in so doing is still fulfilling the law. He's just interpreting it through, uh, through the certain lens. And and I think Jesus is getting on these 
Pharisees around that very idea of going like, look, you've missed the purpose of like Sabbath. Like you've missed right. the whole point of Sabbath. If you think that my disciples who are hungry and going through field and rubbing some grain together and throwing it in their, in their mouth so that they can be fed, if, if that's a vile, if that's harvesting and work, you've totally missed the point. Like that is not why I've given you the Sabbath. I've given you the Sabbath for good. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's just condemning sort of all the rules that they've put up around this idea that have totally missed the point in the, in the heart of the law itself. Right. It's become a source of oppression rather than freedom. And, and it's strategic here that Matthew puts this story immediately after Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so he's like, look at the Sabbath. Here's a way that this is meant to be an easy yoke and a light burden, not something yeah. heavy. And, and he quotes this Hosea text as sort of like, look, like you, you're missing mercy, compassion, like all these things. I, I care about the Sabbath. And I think if Jesus, if Jesus, if they were to ask him like, Hey, like, should your disciples like harvest on the Sabbath, like take in bags and do the work and, and work the field? I think Jesus would be like, no, like that, that's not in line with, with what I've said about Sabbath either. But like, if you think going through the fields and feeding themselves because they are starving is, is a violation of Sabbath, you've missed the point of the mm-hmm. Sabbath. And, and so I think he's working to interpret the, 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 the Sabbath correctly where mercy, compassion, giving, caring, loving your neighbor, all that stuff is in included in that. Right. And so they come with him going, okay, if that's what your teaching is about uh, the Sabbath, what do you do about this guy who's got a withered hand on the Sabbath? And, and in those days, there was a debate with the rabbis of like how, how they interpreted Torah by this animal in the pit. And are you allowed to take it out of the pit? Does that count as work to raise it up out of the pit? Um, and, and so um, it, it's an important conversation. And um, no matter what, all the Pharisees ultimately agreed, or all the rabbis ultimately agreed that, yes, you get the donkey out of the pit for different reasons, but you get the donkey out of the pit. And so Jesus picks up on that and says, like, look, you, you already know that you get the animal out of the pit on the Sabbath. Like, you, you, don't want, you don't want death and destruction on the Sabbath. So why would you freak out that I would heal someone on the Sabbath? Like, you already agree about this animal. This man is, is a human, a, a person. Why would, and I'm, I'm trying to heal. Like, why would you – you're worried about if it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. And, 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 and Jesus goes, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Like, that is what Sabbath is for. It's for the doing of good, to, 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 to rest in God's good creation and for, for creation to flourish like that is Sabbath. It's like the splinter versus the log in the eye of it. He talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus is kind of panning back and saying, look at the heart of the Sabbath. And what we do is for mercy, is for God's heart and his love for people. It's not so you can make rules around healing or how much grain you can pick. You're missing the heart of it. Yeah. And, and there's no... Old Testament law that says you can't do a healing on the Sabbath. They just started interpreting it that way. And, and so the same thing, like he will accuse them of later where it's like, Hey, you tithe off your mint and your spices and stuff like that. And Jesus doesn't go, that's wrong. Like, yeah, that's what you're commanded to do, but you've missed the main point, the, the weightier things, the mercy, the justice, the, the things I actually desire, um, to, to be out of you because your hearts are hard. Like you need a new heart. Yeah. So they, they get mad at him and want to stop what he's doing. Um, and so Jesus kind of withdraws and we see another fulfillment of Isaiah passages. Yeah, I mean, Jesus isn't being drawn into these debates and he's not interested in these like endless quarrels and these back and forth right. and stuff like that. He's not going to get into that world. And so he, he retreats, he's gentle, he's quiet. Um, he, he's bringing his kingdom and it's like healing, love for others, stuff like that. Like that is what Jesus is about. He's not going to get into this whole new world of rabbinic debate. And, and so, um, yeah. And then we, go, go ahead. 
But then we move into uh, this this whole accusation around Beelzebub and the casting out demons and and they they sort of accused Jesus since he's been driving out demons that oh he's he's working for Beelzebub. It's like Jesus very logically and simply <laughs> counteracts us. Like, how can I be driving out evil and at the same time working for evil? Like, that doesn't even make any sense in your accusations, it, which is it's pretty plainly mm-hmm. logical that what he just argues here. Um, and, and so, but but by the se- second temple period, the kind of time frame we're in, like only the belief was only God could drive out demons. So what Jesus is doing is super provocative. Um, it, it is confirmation for these people of like, you are, you seem to be, you're doing messianic things. Um, and they're very uncomfortable with it. The, the, the Pharisees, the leadership seem to have a big problem with who Jesus is and what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're starting to see, I think that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't know that they can deny that he's the fulfillment of some of what they've read in the old Testament, but at the same time, these people have been influential and powerful and been able to tell everybody what to do and how to do it. And Jesus is challenging all of that. And so they are losing power. They're seeing their power and their influence kind of slipping through their fingers. And so they're trying to figure out what they can do to turn people away, away from Jesus, honestly, to, re- to regain their power and control. Yeah. And, and so he's going to confront them here where he's like, look, like, I can't cast out demons if I'm just one of them. Like I'm, I'm something stronger because this is a movement of God. This is God doing spirit things and driving out demons. Like as you should know. And so I think that's why he gets into this whole statement about blaspheming the spirit. It's like, look, like God is doing a work right now and, and driving out demons, which, which you guys should know that that's God's work, that, that this is, um, what, what God is doing. And, and yet you stand here and you say that it's the work of, Satan, like you're ascribing the Holy Spirit's breaking into the world to Satan. And, and that is not okay. Like Jesus straight up condemns them of like, that is, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Like that's, 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 that's tearing down, that's slandering the work of God. And, and, and I think Jesus is saying like, look, like you could speak out about any teachers, any other sons of men, like, like, like that, that, that's fine. But you don't speak against the spirit of God. Like if it's working, you don't stand there and go, that's, that's not, that's, that's, that must be Satan working. And I think there's some application. Like, I think there's some ways that, um, we, we look at certain movements that are outside of our theological camp or things like that and go, yeah, like that that seems satanic. And it's like, we should be a little cautious, I think, on some of those accusations. I, I think there might be times where it's off or bad doctrine or something like that. And, 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 and okay, like we, we, there should be some discernment. But I think at times, I, I think we, we lob um, w- ways to speak about the Holy Spirit's work in, in ways that, that, that we almost ascribe to the work of the enemy. Mm. And, and we got to be... Uh, a little cautious on some of those accusations. Yeah. So Jesus transitions into this idea of a tree and a fruit being like, okay, listen, you think you know what's right, but at the end of the day, you're going to know a tree by its fruit. What kind of fruit are you producing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, look, I've been driving out demons. I've been healing others. I've been given blind sight, leprosy of hill. Like, why would you call me a bad tree? Like, this is the good tree. These are the fruit that you should want that the spirit will produce. And yet you're, you have careless words. You sit there and say, that's not of God. And, and so know that those are careless words and you will be judged by those words. If things are of God and you're saying they're not of God, careful, careful with your words. Yeah. I hope that was a caution for anyone who read it, just that we will, we will give an account for every careless word we speak. And whether that's a joke or a theological statement that we're wrong about, we give an account for that. But then we also look to Jesus Christ who paid the price for every single careless word. Yeah. And, and if, and if 
um, scriptures any indication, like sometimes the spirit of God's working in people who don't know him. And, and I think sometimes like we got to be able to see those things and to see where there's fruit and, and be able to identify, look, it seems like God is working in that person's life. And, and, and maybe they, they haven't come to repentance yet. And maybe that's our role in their life, but, but, but to be able to identify those things. Yeah. And so, but the Pharisees seem to not be able to identify those things. And so Jesus is pretty harsh with them. It's like, he just came off of this whole conversation about fruit and, and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, okay, well then give us a sign. And Jesus is like, what? And, and, and I I'm not going to give you a sign. And, and, and he's like, here's the sign. And, and yes, I, I think there's a, a tie into his resurrection. The resurrection will be the sign. But, but then he also makes a statement about those in Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. And, and, and I think like, Jonah's mission was to pagan Gentiles. Sheba was a foreign woman drawn to the wisdom of God. It's like, you want a sign? Like, the Old Testament all talked about God's spirit breaking forth to the Gentiles. Like, that was all over the place. And now, Jesus is healing. Jesus is driving out demons. There's Gentiles coming to hear him. There's, there's a new movement of God towards the Gentiles, and these Pharisees are not understanding it at all. And, and it's almost like he's saying, like, look, the Gentiles that got it are going to sit here and condemn you because you should get this, and you're not. Mm. And, the, and Queen of Sheba, she's going to condemn you because you should get this, and you're not. And I'm greater than Solomon. I'm greater than Jonah. And I'm here doing this work, and you're totally misidentifying. You're totally missing it and you're totally not understanding it. Yeah. You know, and he calls them evil and adulterous. And this idea of adultery is not that they were necessarily unfaithful to their spouses, but because they're being unfaithful to God. And yet they are the most religious people. They're the most devout followers of Yahweh and, and they're missing it all. Yeah. And I think there's some uncomfortableness. Like, they're the people who, yeah, have, have memorized their scriptures probably more than any other group in Israel at this time, other than maybe the, the folks down in the Dead Sea. And then um, th- their desire to, to be obedient is because, like, they, they want to they please Yahweh. They want to get rid of their foreign oppressions. Like, there, there's some legitimate, like, drive as to why they're trying to be so obedient. But, but they're totally missing like the major pieces of, of scripture and what God ha- had always planned on doing and what God is now doing through mm. Jesus. And, and, and so they're just like, it's like they, they missed the forest for the trees. That's the sort of phrasing of like, they got caught up in some of those details that they totally missed, like what the main goal or picture was. And Jesus is like, you're missing it. Yeah. Which ties into this idea of this unclean spirit story he tells. Yeah. They're focused on the wrong things almost. Like, look, or, or focused on not the main thing. Like, you're focused on driving out sin. And, and that's a good thing. And, and, and trying to be obedient is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that part. But if, if your goal is only to not do something, as opposed to focusing on what is true and what is right and filling your mind with the things of God, filling your heart with the affections that God wants for you to, to, to focus, like even as uh, Paul will say in Corinthians, like we are transformed from glory to glory as we behold Jesus, not mm-hmm. as we just focus on the sin and try to get rid of it and put to death the flesh, which is still something that we should work on. But like it is there is when it's when we we think of whatever's true and whatever's right and whatever's good and, and think about the things of God and to focus on like I think that's a huge lesson for sanctification. It's like sometimes we teach like hey like hey don't don't look at that thing on your computer or work on this and like we we so work on stopping sin that we don't actually focus on all right how do I feel your affections the, the fact that like Jesus is better than anything you're gonna that see it like doesn't satisfy screen, you yeah. anymore and 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 yeah how do I satisfy that 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 thing in a way that God has meant for it to be satisfied right so if you 
you're no better off if you just follow tons and tons of rules by your own self-control or your own personal discipline without being filled and satisfied by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You're just you're going to be just as empty. Yep. Just on the other side of the fence, I guess. And then Jesus's mother and brothers come down, uh, and we don't get a whole lot of details here versus some of the other gospel writers, but um, yeah, I think this is sort of like the the. I, I think Jesus is still following the law. I don't think Jesus dishonors his woman, though it could be culturally interpreted in an honor shame culture that way. But I think it's the the question of like, all right, God has a God has a, a mission and a call in each of our lives. He absolutely does. And at times those may not align with our mother, our father, our brothers, our family. Um, and, and the call to God's family and God's mission does trump um, right. our, our biological ties, our familial desires for our life, all those sort of things. So like I remember as a college pastor having to counsel through a lot of that where it's like my parents always wanted me to do this, but like I feel like God's calling me to this. It's like, look – you can honor your parents and still have to obey God's call. And, 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 and that, that supersedes just because they want you to be a doctor or something like that. Yeah. And and you know, I mean, in these cultures, your whole identity was wrapped up in your family in a way that I can't really describe. And we can't necessarily understand for those of us who are born in more individualistic family societies in the States. Uh, But this is a reminder that to follow Jesus is going to cost us everything. And and while we don't often feel the weight behind this statement, or many of us listening don't, um, and of course we would have sorrow at hurting or disappointing our family if they disagree with our beliefs, it would not have the same impact on us and our family culture as it would on others. So take this time and this moment just to pray for people from these honor-shame cultures who come to know Christ. I mean, and they are really risking losing their families or being disowned by their families and uh, really losing everything for what they believe, which is a big deal. Yeah, very big deal. And so then we enter the world of parables, uh, which um, it— may either seem like, oh man, these are so easy to read or may drive you crazy, uh, depending on, uh, how, how much you really want to dig. And, and, uh, the idea of parables is not new to Jesus. Parables were rabbinic ways of teaching and they've taught that way. And they still continue to teach that way to this day. And, and Jesus will tell us in a second, his purpose behind his parables, but, um, he opens with the parable of the soils, which is not that much different. The, the parable of like four listeners or four hearers, um, was a common parable of his day. So he's not, he's not, he's picking up on, on a common use of teaching about these four different soils. Um, and, and he will go on to explain it. So, uh, we'll kind of wrap all those together because he kind of tends time to explain and tends time spends time giving his purposes by, uh, teaching it. And so, um, I'll jump to the purpose. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of jump around as we go, but, but he says in his purpose of parables, cause the disciples are like, why are you teaching like this right now? And, and he says like, look, like, they're, they're not going to understand it. And, and I think Jesus is upfront about that of, of look, when I, when I say these things, you may not understand everything I'm saying. And that's the goal. And, and to us in the Western world, it's like, what a terrible goal. Uh, because mm-hmm. we, yeah. we're like, no, just tell me what it says or tell me what it means. That's how, we, uh, that's how our education system works. But in an Eastern sense, like the, the goal of a teacher is to help you self-discover the, the true answer and, and to sort of leave clues that you arrive at the conclusion yourself. And, and so discovery was, was essential. And, and so Jesus, I think is doing that in his parables of going, look, I'm not going to, this isn't going to be easy. And it's going to require you to really think, to really pray, to really know your text, to really uh, ask God for, for illumination, to, 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 
push in and, and to chew, to meditate, to haga, as, as someone would say, to, to, to do that work. But like, that's the goal. Like, that is why he's teaching. And he's like, and some of you are going to do that work. And some of you aren't. Some of you have been around these scriptures your whole life and you hear me teaching and I'm going to teach in parables and you're, you're going to hear it and you're really not going to care and you're going to move on. But some of you are going to sit in it and it's going to, you're going to wrestle with the text. You're going to wrestle with what God desires. You're going to wrestle with these things. You're going to, you're going to be willing to, to work on your heart and to do these things. And I, and I think that's what Jesus is after in these parables to say, look, that, that is why I teach this way. And, and he's going to do that. And some of these parables, you're like, all right, what is God really after? Let me wrestle with this and let me spend time with this. And and I would argue if you enter into that world and working with parables, I, th- I think parables would be stuff you can chew on for the rest of your life. I mean, as much as a lot of other scriptures are, I think the parables will be this endless source of like, let me think about that a little bit more. And, and I think Jesus goes there. And I think this opening story about the four soils is is presenting that. Uh, I think it's it's look, there there's there's some like as as his preaching, as his teaching on the kingdom of God goes forth, there's some that hear it and, and they're good soil. And and they're it's gonna grow and they're gonna spend time there. But there but there's some where the soil goes and like because of cares of the world, they go a different direction and because of uh, of 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 just the hardness it's just not going to really take root. And so there, there's all these different teachings. And, and even in those, like this, the one that fell upon the path, like that's a Hosea 10 reference where the vine grows and the ground is hard. And, and it's teaching about, okay, if you're like that, what's this like? And Jesus's application in those is actually tied into what Hosea actually speaks about. And then some fell in the rocky path. Isaiah five speaks about a vineyard that's grown where there's rocks and God has to remove those rocks. And Jesus's application on, on the rocky path ties into Isaiah five. Some fell on the ground is choked up by thorns. Jeremiah four, teaches that Israel is not to sow amongst the thorns. And Jesus' teaching on the application of, of choking of thorns ties into Jeremiah and, and what is the, fleeing the idolatry of the world. And so there, there's all these layers. And hear me very clearly. If you don't dive into that deep layer, it is still true. And there's still plenty for you to understand. And there's still, um, the application is still absolutely there. But I think I think the way Jesus teaches in the parables is also an invitation for us to dive in deeper to, to, to really chew and meditate on his word that much more. And it's that much harder that we're not agrarian and most of these stories are agrarian. We are not, um, uh, we're not, we're not old Testament steeped like this crowd would have been. Um, and oh, there was a third earlier, but I forgot about it. So uh, there's already ways that, oh yeah, and this style of teaching where uh, the answer is not straightforward is not our natural bend. And so there's already ways that, that approaching parables is so culturally not connected to us and makes it really hard for us to, to understand these probably to the depths that I think that we're supposed to. Yeah. And, and there's a thread that's common through Matthew. And I don't know that I can articulate it super well because I don't think I've quite figured it out even yet. But this idea of this light burden and this easy yoke that is offered to us through salvation. But then we have these pictures of erring on the side of legalism or erring on the side of license. And then we come here to the parables and basically we're just being reminded over and over and over again again, that it requires work to follow God. You know, in Jeremiah, it says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And God will reveal himself to us. He will communicate with us, but we can't always expect others to take our food and chew it up and spit it out for us. You know, like we need to be willing to do the work and exercise the discipline of seeking to know a God who's worthy of being known. And I think these parables are a good reminder of that. 
And so, and I think there's multiple levels on interpreting the sower of um, the spreading of the seed. And yes, like God spreads the seed, but he does it through the preaching of his people. And yes, a lot of people have different reactions, but I think it's also a self reflection of like, okay, am I, am I really a listener? Am I really good soil? Do I, do I take the word in and, 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 and really meditate on it? And do I think about it or, or do I just get choked out by the cares of this world and, and move forward? And so, um, I think that's all tied in and we get the parable of the weeds. I'll take a moment to explain that, uh, when Jesus explains it, uh, but, uh, let's move on to the mustard seed and leaven, which I think is another great parable. Um, yeah. I love the idea of starting with something that's really small and seemingly insignificant or even an inconvenience and what it grows into, whether you choose for it to grow into that or not. Right. And, and there's, once again, there's little ways that Jesus like does things that to the, to the audience, you'd be like, what did you just say? Uh, because like, the mustard seed is a weed. Uh, it is not really harvested much. Uh, so a farmer putting it in his field would have been like, why is that happening? Because it's counterintuitive. And so like heaven does are small, like a seed, it's counterintuitive. But like a weed, it's also unstoppable. It's like kudzu of the Middle East. Uh, so you don't want it in your farmland because it'll spread and go everywhere else. And, and so there's this counterintuitiveness, it's unstoppability, but it's also not a tree. Um, it's like a shrub and, and it's not the most significant bush in the world. And so when Jesus goes, yeah, but it, the kingdom of God's like that. And then it grows into a tree and the birds take nest to the hearers. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Jesus, like a mustard mustard doesn't do that. Um, because Jesus is making a reference to something that they should pick up on. Um, and, and, and Ezekiel 17, we get this idea of God taking a, a sprig, a tiny branch from this tree, planting it and growing big. And then Ezekiel will stay. And it grew so big that the birds of the field would, would find the rest, like using the same language of this text. And, and in Ezekiel, the birds, the animals are almost always the Gentiles. And so um, in that story is Ezekiel speaking for the day when, um, when, when God will do such a move that it will seem small and insignificant, but ultimately it will bring a blessing to the Gentiles. And, mm-hmm. and I think Jesus is saying, that like the kingdom is small it's counterintuitive it's unstoppable but this is what's happening now and is leading it it will lead to a day when the gentiles will be blessed and and it's slow it's 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 not instant this is not a um when jesus comes to be messiah everything's going to get better in 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 a in a moment and so we get the same story, I think, in the in the yeast. The kingdom of heaven starts small, like yeast. It's counterintuitive. Uh, yeast culturally would have had a negative connotation as opposed to a positive. And it's unstoppable. You put least yeast into the dough. There ain't, there ain't stopping it at that point. And, and so, um, but Jesus tells a story that also sparks interest. Like she has three measures of flour. First of all, that's 60 pounds of flour. Uh, which is legitimately a lot of flour. But not only that, but there's an Old Testament reference to that of three measures of flour. And and so where else have we seen that? Well, in Genesis 18. And what is happening in that story is Abraham and Sarah are encountering these sojourners, these visitors who they don't know who they are. And and these outsiders come and and Sarah and and Abraham make all this food and have three measures of flour and bless them. And and so I think the the statement is the kingdom of God is coming. Small, it's significant, um, it's counterintuitive, but it's unstoppable and it's going to spread and it's going to bless the Gentiles. That is what is happening right now. Yeah. And, and for us to remember through this, that God is working in ways that we can't always understand and we're not always going to see, but we just need to be faithful to what God has tasked us with and trust that he's going to work in and through it, even if it doesn't seem to make sense. But uh, your platform or the people, the number of people you're influencing um, may have very little to do with your fruitfulness. 
and working in ministry. Yeah. So he, I mean, he's laying it out, but then he says, some of you are going to get it and some of you are not. Like there's going to be people that get this and there's going to be people that don't, but this is what is happening. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And then he goes back to explain the parable of the weeds because the disciples come up being like, Jesus, what was that parable about? We, we don't get what, what the heck were you talking about? And, and Jesus is using, I mean, I think he's using all these parables brilliantly. We're going to get to the next few next week where I think he kind of encapsulates all of them. Um, but um, they, they're sort of like, you explain this whole weed things. And it's interesting because I think Jesus takes a moment to define all the elements, but he doesn't actually go through the work of explaining exactly what the parable is about. He's like, well, let me, let me define the elements for you, um, but not get into the full explanation. And, and remember we had that conversation about John Baptist and, and sort of the two part Jewish understanding of the world where when the Messiah comes, he's going to drive out Rome. He's going to drive out the oppressors. He's going to set up shop and and we're going to have the kingdom we've always wanted. It's going to flourish. It's going to be great. It's going to be Shalom. It's going to be the Shalom of God. And I think this story is to go, no, <laughs> that's not what the kingdom of God is quite going to be like yet. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are being planted at the same time. And, and things aren't going to be suddenly just the field full of God stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there's going to be both and only that, but you as a worker, like, even though that's a surprise to you and you're going to see that Satan's still around and Satan's still working, it's going to be a surprise to you. And you're going you know, to want to to pull up the roots and to, to drive them out and to deal with all evil. But, but, but no, like your discernment of what everything that's true and everything that's not true and everything that's evil and everything that's good isn't perfect. And so, yes, you do, you do work, you, you do identify good fruit, you, you do preach the gospel, you do call your brothers and sisters to account, but you do a lot of that stuff. But you don't get to judge necessarily always what is what is wheat and what is weeds like and we all know those people like we all have those people in our lives where it's like I, 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 maybe they're saved maybe they're not saved but but i think jesus is saying like I, I don't know if you get to judge that i think you you preach the gospel you you look for fruit and you continue to preach the gospel and you call people to persevere and finish strongly and 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 finish the race that they've been called into but we're not the harvesters and the harvesters mm-hmm. are the ones who truly know what is right and what is true. Yeah. And there will be a day that we will experience the sweetness and the gratification of everything looking like we want it to look and the kingdom of God being fully realized. But right now we have to live anticipating that, that our gratification is not to come yet. And we again are just to live faithfully before God and seek obedience, even though things will continue to work against us. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our day to, shine as sort of that that story wraps up our day to shine is not quite here yet yeah and so psalm 92 yeah i mean i think this just lays out a really beautiful rhythm of prayer and worshiping god every morning and evening and and you don't do it for legalism but you do it because god is worthy of our affections of every moment of every day yeah yeah and we get phrasing like the righteous will flourish like a tree and like come on that that so ties into the parable of like good soil flourishing and not only that but like psalm one we're introduced to the idea of like that 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 we be planted and flourish but the planting the idea of planting is like meditating on god's word in psalm one and so uh, i think there's all these ideas that so tie into what we just talked about in psalm 92 so what should we look out for next week well, I think in the Old Testament, just continue to kind of compare Saul and Samuel. We've got these two leaders in Israel right now, and it's almost kind of like the weeds and the wheat. Like you see one person who's faithful to God and one person who's not, but just compare and contrast some of their decisions and their behaviors and even their ideas of what success looks like um, 
for your own learning and just to see how God was working in Israel back then. What about New Testament? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I've had a hard time with parables. They're hard. Uh, They're meant. Jesus yeah. literally said these are meant to be hard. Yeah, and and I think I'll get there eventually. But it's been a little bit discouraging for me, honestly, to study because I, I feel like I can't I can't figure them out. And if I'm feeling this, I'd expect I'm not the only one. And so, um, I'd encourage you to kind of just spend some time with all of them, which you read some of this week, and then what you're going to read next week, and. And what is the kingdom of heaven compared to in each one? And what is the lesson from each parable? And why did Matthew put them in the order that he put them in? Don't just read past them quickly and be like, oh, there's that story I've heard before. But really consider them and what they mean and why they are gathered together in the way that they are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, studying the parables will be, as I said, like this endless dig that, that you can have. And I think even literally one of the parables teaches that. And um yeah, so look for that. But the Old Testament, um, yeah, start keeping track of a little bit of the way that Saul's introduced because David will be like everything opposite mm-hmm. from the tribe that Saul comes from, from the work or what Saul is doing when he first encounters Samuel uh, to like to the kind of physical status of Saul. Like all of it is just so counter uh, David, and I think that's very intentional. Uh, and and then in the New Testament, the the the, yeah, the further parables, I think, will actually continue to dive into this whole weeds conversation. Um, but as I said, there, there's some puzzleness to how the parables work. And 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 yeah, like e- even the conversation about, as I just said, like there's going to be even one I think that teaches like, look, there's going to be more you're going to find every time. And, and that's okay. That's actually good. And and you don't arrive at a, at a finality when it comes to to dealing with the parables. So that's it for this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.